You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Arm kicks off its IPO roadshow, seeking nearly $5 billion. But we'll break down why the offering could be significantly smaller than previously targeted. Plus, we'll take a look inside Huawei's new phone, which holds the most advanced chip made in China yet. This is the country seeks to raise a $40 billion fund to bankroll investments in domestic chip making and research. And how digital regulation in the EU is impacting America's tech giants amid the forthcoming Digital Markets Act. We'll bring you the details of what is going to be unveiled in terms of those gatekeepers as soon as tomorrow. But first, let's check in on these markets and some of the big U.S. players not managing to lift the Nasdaq all that much today. We're actually down by about a tenth of a percent. Look, it's the back to school feeling. But we're also getting our reality check on what is a macro picture that is pretty ugly over in China. It's pretty ugly over in Europe. When you look at the PMI data, the 10 year yield just rising after of course, a day of rest and play that we had on Monday in the U.S. trading action. We may be perhaps picking up a little bit as we see more investment-grade bonds coming to the market. Of course, that back-to-school feeling means we're going to get a ton of issuance. I'm looking at the Bloomberg Dollar Index, though. This is really the asset class to be watching at the moment. Dollar pressured higher at the moment. Is this just trying to find some sort of, well, more safety in the current macro picture? Is this also that the Federal Reserve is going to be keeping higher rates for longer vis-a-vis the rest of the world when the U.S. economy just manages to navigate a downturn for the rest of the world. We look at what's happening in terms of Bitcoin, therefore, on the lower side, when you see the dollar outperform, we're just down by about a third of a percent overall. 25,700 is where we trade, Ed. But get into the nitty-gritty, the individual movers. Yeah, you and I were talking this morning about how there's not that much action in the technology sector. There are a few individual names. Airbnb up 6.7%. Best performer on the NASDAQ 100. Why? News that it's going to be included in the S&P 500. That driving that single name higher. We teased Huawei. We're going to bring you something fascinating. An official teardown of the Mate 60 Pro. One mover to the downside is the ADRs of Xiaomi. The theory being that if Huawei gains market share in the domestic smartphone market, it will be at Xiaomi's expense. And NVIDIA, a little bit lower. Moving to the downside, we're going to have a really interesting conversation, you and I, Caroline, about NVIDIA's valuation. And one voice who says 
it's getting a little bit extreme and overdone. <laughs> the main story I would say in Tuesday's morning, remember we're coming off a long weekend, is ARM's IPO. We got that F1 filing and here are the numbers. On the low end, $47 a share. At the high end, $51 a share. Raising 4.87 billion dollars in terms of proceeds from an IPO. This is the early stages, but these are much lower numbers than have been reported out there. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Liana Baker, who leads our deals coverage out of New York. And Liana, walk us through the numbers and what we've learned in this kind of opening foray of the Roadshow Week. The numbers, as you mentioned, came in a little below what had earlier been reported. Arm had been looking to raise, at one point, we had reported eight to 10 billion. That has been scaled back a bit. You mentioned that we could still see it go up. The roadshow's just starting. There could be great demand for all we know for these shares, and we could see them raise the range. That's definitely possible. That said, SoftBank has kind of scaled back the amount that they want to sell. Masayoshi Son, the CEO and founder of SoftBank, is very bullish on Arm. He doesn't want to get rid of the whole thing. They're only selling 10% in the IPO. So that's one of the reasons why the company is not looking to raise as much as they had thought. And because they're not looking to raise as much, the valuation is a little lower. It's still a behemoth, though. This is a company, according to the filing, that'll be valued at you know close to $55 billion. So it's definitely sort of the first big elephant out of the gate to get the IPO markets moving again. Yeah. Boy, we are excited on it. So too are perhaps some of the arms owned customers that are coming in as integral investors in the IPO. But if there are going to be any flies in the ointment, what are they? What are all the questions that the roadshow going to be about? There's definitely questions about ARM's path forward. They've changed their business model a bit. They're trying to get into the more lucrative data center and computing, not a fully away from mobile. Mobile is their roots and they're ubiquitous uh, with all their customers, many of whom you mentioned are participating in the IPO, like Apple and AMD and others. But will the company be able to fully change its business model to spark growth? That's the question. Investors will want to see, especially the ones who had invested when it got taken private in 2016, will they be back and what's the path forward? We got someone to talk about those key questions with Liana Baker. Great setup. She's got some busy weeks coming up. Meanwhile, let's extend this conversation. Pierre Verogu is with us, analyst over at New Street Research. And it feels to me, Pierre, that a key question on everyone's lips is exposure to China, particularly when we have the macro data coming in thick and fast that's on the weaker side. Yes, you know, as a rule of thumb, um, the, um, the semiconductor industry is exposed 20, 25% to domestic China. Uh, and, and guess what? Um, that is really almost everywhere. And semiconductors is exposed about the same to China. So 20, 25% of revenues. Um, people talk a lot about it because the setup is very specific for ARM. They have like a subsidiary in China they don't control, and that's their only Chinese client. So all companies in China who want to use ARM technology, license their technology, their IP, uh, have a copyright uh, uh, licensing on their on their uh, instruction set have to go through this local arm company. Mm-hmm. It has created some difficulties in the past because there is lack of control, lack of uh, uh, you know um, uh, auditing uh, of the company. But it's it's relatively minor in, in my view. At the end of the day, as long as um, China wants to use arm and needs arm, um, um, arms business in China is going to look good. But of course. You know, you know what the situation is. China wants to grow more independent from the West, and that's going to be a headwind uh, for ARM. Um, in my view, very slow, very non, 
um, very limited impact on how you think about the valuation of the business today. Okay, so tell us how you're thinking about the valuation. What sort of number are you looking at? What vindicates it? Yeah, so Arm is an interesting business model. They spend a lot of money on research and development. They come up with great architectures. Um, that's also a standard. The whole industry is using it, so that's really the architectures everybody wants to use. And then clients pay a license fee to Arm to get the right to start working on, the, on their IP, and then they pay royalties uh, once they produce chips that contain Arm's technology. And so these royalties read to me, um, today, they are not all profits because ARM has been over-investing in their operations to, to build this base of, uh, of IP. But going forward, royalties are pure profits. So I like to look at ARM, and that's what I've been doing, you know, when uh, the stock was um, uh, listed before 2016, as a multiple on royalties. Uh, you see that over time, it's a very relevant metric, very stable, it reflects very well uh, the gross outlook of the company. Um, and it has historically, like just before the acquisition by SoftBank, it was trading on six turns higher than the stocks. And so that's the kind of valuation I'm looking at today. So uh, I'm looking at 20, um, 2027 uh, revenues for, uh, uh, for ARM uh, as, we, as we model them. And um, I, I look at 27 times that. So that gives me like an $82 billion valuation uh, in, uh, in, uh, as you enter into 2026. So I find the valuation uh, range today, uh, 50 to, to 54 billion, very, uh, very attractive. It gives you like an opportunity to see, um, you know, 20% um, uh, per annum return on, uh, up to 20% per annum return on the, uh, on the name between now and the beginning of 2026. 2026. It's interesting because I'm fascinated by the mechanics of this. You write in your notes that the range 47 to $51 is attractive to investors, new investors taking advantage of the IPO. But all told, SoftBank's going to hold on to 90% of this company. Why? Well, because, um, you know, so two reasons. The first one, SoftBank sees in the name, probably even more upside than I see. The Massa is, is, is very, very bullish on, uh, on uh, ARM's uh, future. So for, for SoftBank, really, it's not a matter of getting rid of ARM, of like making a profit on ARM. It's more a matter of, you know, after five years as a private company, um, the company has tried a lot of things, have made uh, a lot of investments. Some of them have worked well. Some of them are wor have worked less well. And now ARM is at a point in time where becoming a listed company again makes a lot of sense for the company in terms of you know being successful, attracting talent, uh, creating the right you know uh, like, like governance setup and uh, uh, management setup. Being a listed company brings a lot of advantages to ARM. I think it's a very good timing to do that. And then for for SoftBank, the idea is not, in my understanding, to to exit uh, ARM, but more to have ARM as an additional very liquid asset um, and an asset on which um, uh, SoftBank can leverage to actually raise money for further investments. Um, so, so that's really the, the way I think about it. So I don't expect, yes. you know, SoftBank to, 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 to lower their share, significantly lower their, their stake in ARM anytime soon. Uh, Pierre, the, the, the great fun of a, a traditional IPO is that it, it gives the company an opportunity to tell a story about themselves, right, to the world. And the story that Arm wants to tell is that they are relevant for AI. They are going to do great with all of the R&D and CapEx going into AI. Do you buy that story? 
Yes, yes, I do. But you have to be very careful to understand it well. I like to qualify that as a very, like an AI diversification. Yes, almost everything that is going to grow arms revenues, royalty revenues over the next five years is going to be related to AI. So from that perspective, I do agree with your statement. But interestingly, all the AI arm is going to get exposed to is not like the AI clusters that we see being rolled out today, like the NVIDIA or TPU-based uh, AI clusters. In that part of AI, ARM has actually very, very little, if any, exposure. But in your mobile phone, you need larger chips. You need chips with better IP so that the chip can better deal with AI models and with all these services that, that are built on AI. And ARM is actually bringing to the market a lot of innovation uh, that is very relevant to that. And in particular, the number one driver of um, you know, pricing power for ARM over the next five years is the rollout of their V9 architecture. So that's the ninth uh, iteration of their instruction set. And the number one innovation that this V9 brings to the market is actually uh, AI-specific instructions. So the, the next generation of um, ARM chips are going to do a much better job dealing with uh, AI workloads. And so from that perspective, it's really, it's really an AI play, but totally uncorrelated to what's happening today, like the crazy increase in spending on AI clusters, because in a GPU, in an AI accelerator, ARM is between a minimal contributor and not a contributor at yes. all. Uh, Pierre Ferragu, analyst over at New Street Research, joining us, Caro, straight after publishing his reaction note to that F1 fighting. Just great timing having you on the show. Thank you so much. Looking at Huawei's Mate 60 Pro, going through a teardown by Tech Insights, Bloomberg News asked the research firm to lift the lid on China's latest domestic smartphone. What we learned, that is an advanced 7 nanometer chip, which was made by China's top chip maker, SMIC, or Semi-Manufacturing International Corp. It makes a sign that there's some early progress in Beijing's push to beat out US technology export curbs. Joining me here on set is Bloomberg's Ian King. The speculation and the rumor was that it was five nanometer. It's not, it's seven nanometer. SMIC or SMIC made. Tell us what we know from that teardown. Yeah, you've got to remember like three is better than five, which is better than seven. Three would be sort of the, the state of the art in terms of manufacturing capabilities that somebody like Apple would try to be accessing at this point. So seven sounds like a long way behind, maybe two, three years behind, but you can still do a lot with that level of manufacturing technology. Underpinning this though is, should they actually be doing this? Is this representing a certain convention of what the US is trying to do, which is to get Huawei away from access to technology. And to that point, Caroline, we should, we should say that Bloomberg went to the US Commerce Department and asked if this seven nanometer tech is caught within the bounds of curbs. And I don't believe the US Commerce Department replied. Yeah, thus far it does shine a light though. Really a question mark on what has been the US spearheading this, Ian, of a global clampdown on basically China's access to this sort of technology. Do you think it does ring question marks? 
No, there's, there are absolutely questions. To, to be fair to Commerce, though, they're not going to comment about individual actions that they take against a specific company. That's kind of their policy. So we tend to sort of find that out when it gets announced, and, to, and they have actually sort of when these stories crop up, they have taken action. So we'll see what happens there. There's definitely an onus on them to take some action, um, but we wouldn't expect them to talk about it right now. We, we did learn about where China's at in its, its technology competence, right? Um, you know, there's this idea that it's seven nanometer, but they sold out of the handset very quickly. And that indicates to us, even though it's two generations removed from the cutting edge, that they're not making seven nanometer at volume yet or at scale. Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation that we had last week, remember. You can make a few of these things on the bench, right? That's great. Well done. You're good at the technology. But the real art is to make millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of these things. We really need to see whether they can do that or not and do that on an economic basis. If they can, then this is definitely you know, a red flag, warning symbols, whatever you want to describe it with. If they can't, then maybe this is a symbolic thing just to poke the Secretary of Commerce from the US, who was in China last week. I mean, some great reports, for example, the Jeffrey Stream putting out you know, the myths and the facts about this particular Mate 60. I'm interested more broadly on the impact on competition, though. The what has been reality is the share price reaction from Xiaomi. Ian, does this put Huawei back on the map, even if only in China? Well, you have to remember that they basically got out of the handset business. They essentially spun it off because they were in such a difficult position because of these sanctions. This, as a symbolic thing, as, as something to market around, it's, it's, it's absolutely sensational. Look at the attention it's getting. We're talking about it on the other side of the world, right? So, yes, of course, it really helps. But again, we'll need to see that volume. As Ed and I just discussed, we'll need to see that volume. Absolutely brilliant throughout Ian King. Thank you so much for getting us up to speed on the teardown. Meanwhile, let's get a teardown of what we're likely to be hearing from the EU. Set to unveil its gatekeepers list tomorrow under the EU's forthcoming Digital Markets Act. Of course, we've been long anticipating which platforms are currently going to be at risk to much stricter regulations. You guessed, likely these big players. From New York, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Time now for Talking Tech. First up, advertising sales at X, of course, formerly known as Twitter, they're down some 60%. Neil Musk is pointing the blame at the Anti-Defamation League. Now, Musk is actually accusing that the not-for-profit is having a personal vendetta against him since he purchased the platform. The ADL has previously reported that harassment and extremist content on the platform has spiked since Musk's takeover. Meanwhile, let's turn our attention to Sam Altman, who is now the first person to get an Indonesian golden visa. It's the new visa that allows foreigners to make substantial investments in the country to to remain for between five and ten years. It's part of a new initiative to boost economic development in the region. And plus, TikTok is hiring UK security firm NCC Group to help audit, well, its data, its controls, the protections in Europe in particular. It's all part of what is called Project Clover. It's similar to a program right here in the US to reassure Europeans that the Chinese government can't access their data. TikTok currently runs a data center in Dublin and is building another one in Ireland and indeed in Norway too, Ed. Yeah, let's stick in that region. Big tech is bracing for the European Union's biggest ever clampdown on anti-competitive practices, which may provoke a new wave of legal battles between regulators and here in Silicon Valley. The announcement on which tech platforms are to be targeted under the EU's Digital Markets Act is due tomorrow. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Gillian Deutsch, who joins us out in Brussels. Caroline and I are so used to covering the kind of antitrust case you know, the battle that played out in court. Now the story in the EU is moving to legislation and rulemaking. Explain what's about to happen. Yeah, so, so tomorrow is a big day for the European Commission. This is when they come out and say which companies, major tech companies, are considered gatekeepers. And those are companies that are considered dominant in their space. And then they're going to lay out which of those products from those companies are considered core platform services. And, and those are the products that these companies are going to have to redesign to comply with a whole bunch of new rules set by the European Commission. And, and to your point, Ed, I mean, I want to back up a little bit. We've seen lots of these antitrust cases from the European Commission for years now, for almost over a decade. Um, and really what the European Commission is trying to do is say, okay, these cases have often dragged out in the courts for years. They have often been unsuccessful as well. So instead of dragging companies to court after they've done something they deem anti-competitive, the Commission's saying, let's let out those rules from the get-go. And so we're really going to see some of those big rules um, come, come to fruition tomorrow. Of course, this sort of follows on from the Digital Services Act. Now it's the Digital Markets Act. And it always ends up to be fines that are either instilled or indeed warned about. Is that really what the stick is here? Are there any carrots that persuade the big companies to fall in line? Well, I do think one carrot is, well, do you want to operate on one of the biggest markets? And so we actually have seen some companies say, actually, maybe not, because there's not enough, there's too much regulation. And one prominent example is that Meta actually has not rolled out threads in the European Union. Um, we've seen it all across the channel in, in the UK and obviously in the United States, but we don't have it here because um, what, what Meta says is that we don't know how these kinds of rules under the Digital Markets Act are actually going to be enforced. And one of those rules is that companies can't combine personal data across platforms. 
So men are saying, you know, I'd rather be safe than sorry, so maybe we shouldn't even roll out the EU. But we also are seeing lots of those threats of fines that companies won't be able to operate in the EU if they break um, break these rules repeatedly. So this kind of two-tiered track, the DMA, and like you mentioned, Caroline, DSA, um, they really are, are, are this, this new wave of regulation. And so the European Commission is trying to work with companies and say, yes. look, we're trying to trying to make this work for you guys too. But there are definitely lots of lots of um, uh, court cases and fines on the horizon they don't. You know, it is often a two-way street. I reflect on my own time in Brussels, Julie. I mean, what do the companies have to say about it? Are they trying to meet them halfway? That makes sense. So I covered the DSA, which, I mean, the, the DMA is more focused on antitrust, anti-competitive behaviors. Um, the DSA is focused on, you know, harmful, illegal content we see um, in, in digital marketplaces or on, on social media platforms. Um, and with the DSA, we've seen companies like TikTok and Meta, they've really redesigned some of their products to be more transparent, to flag illegal content. So they're definitely laying out those things saying, look, we, we're paying attention, we're caring about this regulation. Um, but we also see lots of um, potential court cases on the horizon. Mm. The DSA we already saw two companies, Amazon and Zalando, sue over those rules, and we're almost certain we're going to see more now that the DMA is going into effect. The people who always win, it's the lawyers, it seems, Bloomberg's Gillian Deutsch. Great to have you on the show. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. And I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get a quick check on these markets because a bit of a lackluster start to this month as we currently see the Nasdaq 100 up, what about a tenth of a percent after our Monday rest day? We're just seeing a switch into perhaps a buying mode as we carry on the day's trade. But ultimately, people slow, cautious to get back to the buying as we see this new start of September that usually unearths a lot of bond selling, particularly in investment grade in the corporate world. Two-year yield is up some six basis points. This is where some of the big moves are happening and largely many are thinking because the supply is going to be rich when it comes to investment grade bonds coming to the market and putting some pressure on the overall US treasuries. We're also, though, got a myriad of macro data which looks pretty ugly over in China. It looks ugly in Europe. We're seeing the dollar therefore outperform as maybe a place of safety and ultimately where rates are likely to have to be higher for longer as the US economy outperforms. Bitcoin on the downside vis-a-vis the US dollar. Let's move it on into individual players, though, because as I mentioned, perhaps some of the China macro data not looking so pretty. Some news that came out on Monday while we're all having on Labor Day off was Tesla up some 4% on perhaps some good numbers coming out of China. We understand perhaps sales picking up in the month of August as they price cut their way. Oracle on the upside up 2.7%. Barclays out with the notes going overweight, seeing this growth trajectory looking good for the next few years for Oracle. And I'm looking at Illumina down some 5%. It's the worst performer on the Nasdaq 100, in fact. And this is, we understand they're naming, of course, a new CEO. We knew that Francis D'Souza sort of abruptly left a couple of months ago. Agilent Technologies, Jacob Dason's going to be taking the reins of the DNA sequencing giant. But boy, have they got some issues on their hands, of course. Issues about maybe having to cut back on their overall growth trajectory that they originally thought. Of course, having those proxy battles with billionaire activist Carl Icahn, to name but a few. But a company that is currently looking for a change of leadership. Ed. Uh, Caroline, let's stick with markets. Check this one out. A note from Goldman Sachs saying AI valuations are not excessive. They write, given the valuations of the dominant incumbent companies are high but not excessive, we believe we are still generally in the first phase of a typical 
technology wave. Now, that is not a, a uniformly held position, <laughs> Caro, but it kind of goes to what Jensen Huang was talking about on the NVIDIA earnings call. They see two trends, the move to generative AI and accelerated computing, but he thinks they're in the early innings and Goldman out saying, yeah, yeah, we see that too. And actually Goldman put together a nice basket of some of the smaller stocks that could really benefit in terms of profitability stakes from the uplift of AI, from the productivity that's likely to be granted, therefore seeing maybe even a 70% run rate for some of these stocks on the back of that. I'm interested, though, on who the naysayers have been. And, Ed, it has been the likes of Bank of America saying this is a, a baby bubble, as originally what they seem to be terming it, but worries about the valuations and where they've already run to. And, Ed, also, Morgan Stanley, I mean, we know that they're generally a bearish take often coming from Mike Wilson and the team, but they, too, have been a little bit worried about ultimately how far we've already run and whether tech, Ed, can withstand higher rates, higher borrowing costs. Yeah, I think that there's one or two soft pieces of data that I'm going to look at, and we've got the perfect person to ask next. But how much are people spending now on R&D yeah. proportionately to their operating expenses or their revenue, and then the CapEx commitments mm. from those that want to benefit from AI? Because that investment drives later growth. And I think that's a really interesting place to focus. Yeah, exactly. Whether or not you have the patience, Mandeep Singh always does. He's here with us from Bloomberg Intelligence. And these sorts of whether we're too enthusiastic, whether we've got a bubble or not, are going to come thick and fast. To your mind's eye, the valuations that we're already trading at. Well, so uh, you have to be selective in this environment, given the run-up we have seen and the upward revisions we have seen for the likes of NVIDIA. You have to ask yourself, are there any other companies that could see upward revisions like that? And it's too early to say that companies are able to, you know, unpack new revenue opportunities, especially on the software side or on the services side, because right now they're all buying these chips, they're investing, trying to figure out a, a new product that they can monetize. Copilots is one way that Microsoft has said, okay, we, we could monetize this based on you know the enterprise base we have. We can sell them an additional product in the form of a copilot. For others, it's not so clear whether there are customers that are willing to pay for generative AI. And frankly speaking, we may not be at a point where uh, the technology is there in terms of you know being product ready. Yes. And, and so that's revenue generating revenue ultimately. generating and that and that's where it adds to the R&D expense because you have to buy these chips you have to invest in hiring engineers to develop a product but when it will be product ready is the question and and uh, you could see in fact a margin hit for some of the companies that are investing in generative AI right now and what's so interesting Ed is it's not just sell side notes that we're getting we're getting big takes from buyers admittedly players more in the value space, but I thought the Rob Arnott note in particular was an interesting yes. one. Yes, yeah, Rob Arnott, the, the so-called bubble hunter of, of research affiliates. Mandeep, he makes two points, and I'll, I'll run them, them past you. The first is that he calls it big market delusion, the idea that the valuation of video right now reflects that they won't be displaced by another player, that they basically remain the incumbent, and that second of all, uh, the current market cap of NVIDIA, its size, makes it a really safe bet. What do you make of those two points? Its position in the market, but also its current size. 
I agree, I think, with that comment simply because the companies that are investing right now in generative AI are your hyperscale cloud vendors, and they are the ones who are actually buying these chips you know, in bulk. That's what drove that 100% upside revisions for NVIDIA. I mean, had it been your fragmented enterprise IT base, they wouldn't be making those sort of commitments, uh, even though everyone agrees with the disruptive impact of generative AI. The fact that you're seeing that kind of a big lift in hardware and semiconductor spending is because of the concentrated nature of the buyers, which in this case is the hyperscale cloud players. And you have to ask yourself, if everyone is able to develop that technology over time, then it does get uh, commoditized. And I go back to the revenue generation aspects of you know, how you're going to monetize it in software or services that you can layer. And it's not very clear. We are still at a very early stage in terms of uh, unpacking the monetization opportunities on the software side. During the earnings season, particularly Jensen Huang, NVIDIA's earning call, he, he talked about the, the two big trends, accelerated computing and then the demand for specific generative AI tools, but also capital expenditures. He said, look at the commitments on the R&D side and the CapEx side of those they care about. Are those data points that you track as well at Bloomberg Intelligence to kind of see how far we have left to go on this technology wave? I think, look, everyone right now is spending their R&D dollars uh, on generative AI. The key question to me is, uh, you know, the proprietary data that is available to be fed into a large language model. At the end of the day, the foundational model, the billions of parameters in the model, it's, it's based on you know, large amounts of data. You can't build a large language model on a small data set. And where do you get that data from, given every company has become so conscious about their data, whether it's Reddit, Twitter, all the open internet data? Hmm. And that is where I, I think uh, the heart of how this technology will evolve lives is where do you have access to data. You are singing from a hymn sheet that I've heard Kathy Wood sing from a little bit as well, all about the proprietary data. And ultimately, Kathy was early in her call that NVIDIA was just too far, too fast. Get into other names that are being overlooked here. What are other names that are being overlooked from BI's perspective? Well, so from our perspective, internet companies have an advantage here. Whether it's the social media companies, search companies, they own the proprietary data within their walled gardens. Software companies, on the other hand, they don't have their proprietary data. They have customer data. They can't build large language models on top of that. So clearly, internet platforms are the ones that are coming up with the large language models right now, and they have an advantage in terms of you know, redoing their uh, next version because they have access to that data, whereas software companies like Microsoft partner with OpenAI. And OpenAI actually uh, build their large language model on open internet data from Reddit and Twitter. And they'll have a hard time finding the next iteration of it because everyone is limiting the use of the open internet data. So I do think internet platforms have an advantage in this cycle. And for a longer term discussion on just how much this changes the world of the internet and how much more closed it becomes. Manip Singh, absolutely brilliant from Bloomberg Intelligence. We always love him on the show.
time for VC Roundup. And first up, ThetaRay, a startup that uses artificial intelligence to detect money laundering and other financial crimes in international transactions, has raised $57 million in a recent investment round. The investment comes as financial institutions record a sharp rise in fraud, much of it actually boosted by new AI tools. And next-gen healthcare rose 13% after Bloomberg reported that Toma Bravo is in advanced talks to buy the health records software company. That's according to sources who also say that the private equity firm could announce a deal as soon as this week. Plus, four-time NBA champion and perennial all-star Stephen Curry is among the new investors in Upwind in a $50 million round, which values the Israeli cybersecurity startup at $300 million. Caro. Uh, he's pretty active in the VC world as well as being quite the sports person. Let's talk about venture more broadly right now, Ed, because I'm pleased to say right here in New York is Drew Glover visiting for the time being. It's today's VC Spotlight, therefore. Partner at Fiat Ventures, of course, also Fiat Growth, an emerging VC focused in the Findex space. And what makes you different is not only, well, the focus on underrepresented founders, but notably also the way in which you advise alongside invest. Now, at the moment... Is all the advising, all the discussion about watching these big companies about to come to market and whether or not we'll get more exits in the IPO area? Well, it, it's really interesting. At Fiat Growth, we're able to, and Fiat Growth is the consultancy of the, the Fiat Ventures arm of the business. Um, so we get to advise a number of these companies, but very much stage agnostic, early stage all the way to public companies. And then on Fiat Ventures, we get to invest in these companies because we actually contractually get the right to invest. So in short, yes to your question. We have all this incredible data and education that we get by actually doing the work on the ground with these companies. And one thing that we are seeing is a lot of very optimistic things happening in the public market right now. Um, but also at the same time, um, we have to be really thoughtful in terms of how we're building products and how we're building strategies to bring some of these public companies to uh, the public markets. Um, mm. So in terms of the trends we're seeing, um, seeing a number of trends. I mean, I, I'm hearing a lot of talk about AI and generative AI right now. You and, don't get and, it. And one of, one, of, one of the biggest things is, is, is everyone um, wants to shift their business to an AI first business, where one thing that we are constantly pushing is AI is an incredible tool, is an incredible feature but it's not always the right product to shift to um, because what every all these companies have is an incredible amount of data yeah. that AI can help empower to create really, really valuable features to their core products. I mean, we're just talking to Mandeep Singh about the power of proprietary data. We're also talking about earlier in the show the fact that ARM might not be selling as much of its companies. Well, the amount might raise might not be as much and maybe the valuations are being questions that goes on its roadshow. Ultimately, how important... Is it for Stripe, for example, an area that you're going to be very focused on, a company that is in the world of fintech, but also looking at the public markets at some point? Well, I think, I think Stripe's in a great position. One thing that we've seen over the last, call it, year and a half here is us moving away from this application layer to the infrastructure layer of fintech. And just to break that down, the application layer is very much consumer fintech. You've seen like the crazy growth over the last five years of, or even 10 years, of neobanks like Chime and other ones like Varo Money. I can keep going down the list there. But now now we've moved into this infrastructure layer, and that's something Stripe was uh, ahead of its time on. Um, these are the fintech, um, the fintech technologies that 
um, run our, the entire fintech ecosystem, but we can't necessarily see and feel it. Like, mm -hmm. we know that Stripe is powering the back end of Stripe, but we don't know it's Stripe. Um, or I'm sorry, the back end of Shopify, but we don't know it's Stripe. So one thing that we're seeing in the fintech market today is this infrastructure opportunity where we're going to see over time is every single action we make on every single app is going to be run by this fintech infrastructure. Every time we purchase, every time we get a loan, every time we refinance debt. And so I believe Stripe is going to see a big, a big headwind here over the next couple of years as they decide what their next step is. Hey Drew, good morning from San Francisco. Uh, it's Ed here. I, with everything that's happened in generative AI, has that pushed you at Fiat back to more sort of sole focus on fintech? And the reason I ask that is look at Salesforce or NVIDIA, these big incumbents in AI who deploy big sums of capital. They've really muscled in buying up. I think the pitch book data shows Salesforce was the most active uh, investor in the first half of this year. So do you look at that and say, you know what, you guys have generative AI. We'll stick with fintech. Well, no, I actually think that generative AI is going to be a, a, a massive add to, to what's happening in fintech. All these fintech companies, one thing that they have that, that most other industries don't have in spades is data. And that is consumer data, that is, uh, call it data across the entire customer journey. And when I say the customer journey, I mean the, the moment they download the app to the moment that they fund a bank account. And being able to take that data and organize it through generative, generative AI will be able to not only enhance the, the customer's experience and the customer journey, but it'll also make it so we can add additional products in the most efficient way possible. I mean, some things that we always think about and, you know, um, we have a number of companies that do this is, um, for example, like the home loan process is one that is very much human, uh, human capital intensive. And one thing that we've seen AI be able to do is actually make it so we can take a lot of humans out of that and be able to make it so instead of it being a $20,000 process to complete, you can do that now in two with $2,000 or $3,000. So not only are we seeing companies becoming more capital efficient because of AI, but we're also seeing them be able to um, just become better businesses and more healthy businesses over time. One area of concern has, for example, we mentioned Stripe and the fact that it's going to be having a load of tailwinds. Well, Adyen over in Europe has just perhaps made everyone sit up and worry about the fact that there aren't enough moats that can be consolidated. How much are you seeing really moatable, uh, blockable areas of fintech that others just can't replicate? And that, that's a really great question. Um, I, I think you know what we've seen over the last, call it decade, is, is really the fintech brand wars, where we've mm -hmm. seen a lot of companies really try to build their moat around brand. And one thing that we have noticed is that is very capital intensive. You need the market to really be humming, and you need to, be, you need to see venture dollars leaving pockets quickly. And that has shifted. And so what we're seeing now is, is, especially in the private markets, is folks are no longer just trying to build brands, but they're trying to build sustainable businesses. And that, that brings back to this, this, this transition of moving away from the application layer to the infrastructure layer. One thing about the infrastructure layer is these are B2B businesses. These are B2B2C you businesses. You're going to see them on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. You will not see them on Instagram, but you will feel them in your life, and you might not even know that you're engaging with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so really these API-driven types of business models where um, instead of a company or a large company having to go build a, a team of 100 different engineers, they can just partner with a company and help that, help that enhance their technology technology versus having to buy a technology. Yeah. Um, and that is a big shift we're seeing with some of these public companies is they're no longer buying businesses and taking that money off the balance sheet. They're yes. partnering with businesses and embedding them into their current infrastructure.
uh, Fiat Ventures founding partner, Drew Glover. Great to see you with us out of New York. Thank you. So much more to come on the show. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. All right, Apple TV's got a big boost from its major league soccer streaming service after Argentine superstar Lionel Messi joined the league. That, according to the Wall Street Journal, citing antenna data. Let's bring in Antenna's CEO, Jonathan Carson, for more. The data that you provided is staggering. July 21st was the first game. 110,000 signups for MLS season pass. How does that relate to any other era or period of sign-up for Apple TV? Well, great, great to be here and, and fun to talk about this story because it is such a unique situation uh, in the streaming world. Uh, we're two decades into sports leagues running their own direct-to-consumer uh, video subscription services, and uh, they've become quite mainstream, quite successful. But this is the first time we've ever seen a mid-season pop like this. Uh, a very unique uh, story, obviously, uh, but a unique business story as well for, for Apple TV Plus and for the MLS, uh, seeing a huge surge in subscriptions uh, five months into the season. To that point, how replicatable is this? I mean, Jonathan, how, how long is the sticking power? How much can they depend at Apple on this sort of star power? How many other stars could ever be as an equivalent? To be clear, there is, o- there is only one Leo Messi, uh, so I think this is a, a pretty unique case. Um, but the, the, the sticking power is quite strong. All of July uh, was, was very good for the service. In fact, it was uh, about half the signups, according to our data, for uh, MLS season pass mm. have come in the month of July. Uh, it also happened to be Apple TV Plus. Uh, biggest month. July was their biggest month for, for signups for the year as well. Jonathan, what other data do you have available to your antenna? Do you have evidence or data that all of those signups retained their membership and have not cancelled, for example, by September? We, we absolutely track that. Um, and so we'll see what happens 
uh, over the course of the coming months. What I will say is that historically, sports signups actually retain very well. Um, you may think people are just signing up for one particular game, uh, but people that sign up for, for sports seasons tend to stay through the season. And because they're staying on for several months, uh, those services then have the opportunity to present other programming that they might be interested in. So historically, the churn rates for people that sign up around big sports events are, are lower than churn rates for uh, typical members. Only one Leo Messi, but it is great to geek out on some of the data all around it. Jonathan Carson, brilliant to have your take on the show, CEO of Antenna. Come back with such rich amount of data to the show at some other point. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. Yeah, a big show to recap on our podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and of course, we publish to all of the Bloomberg platforms as well. From San Francisco and over in New York City, this is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.